Hi, and welcome to An Empire in Podcast. I'm Nick Chang, the writer and creative director of the Empire in Peril franchise. This podcast will be aired on YouTube, Rumble, iTunes, and Amazon Music. Follow me on Instagram under NickChang21 and the creative series under An Empire in Peril. Finally, add yourself to the email list at leopardcatmedia.com to keep up with the latest releases. There's a lot coming soon. The purpose of creating this podcast is first and foremost to outline the creative process of the Empire in Peril universe. I want it to be a place to share some stories, answer a whole lot of questions for returning followers, and also delve deeper into the lore and world building than what you would see in the books and movies. I know that for those of you returning, this is coming off the end of a very long hiatus, and I hope to also shed some light on our team's plans for the first part of this episode. I intend for there to be an initial run of about 10 to 12 episodes in the An Empire in Podcast series. If this decides to go well, then uh, we'll, we'll think about having a couple other seasons. Today it's just me though, since we're laying the groundwork for everything, but we do have plans for a pretty solid lineup of other people to be on the show. Uh, we have a few people from the cast and crew of the movie, a few people from the business side of things who would be on for a more conversational format, and lastly, uh, a few subject matter experts that I've been talking to who may be able to discuss a few aspects of world building later on. Now, to recap for newcomers, An Empire in Peril began as something of a fun writing project. It was just a thing that I could entertain myself with while still feeling somewhat productive. In the earlier years of my writing, I viewed it as something that would primarily only exist in my head, and the words I was writing were mostly for my own use. Moreover, it was supposed to be an escape from high school. And it was a place that I could, uh, I could go to to zone out and be away from the problems of the real world. The next thing I knew, though, I was heading the production of an independent feature film, which is now premiering at the opening week of a new theater. I've been pulled half unwillingly into a maelstrom of projects and responsibilities that comprises what will soon become an entire creative universe. And believe me, it's going to be a hell of a ride, and it starts right here in this first episode. So, straight off the bat, I want to explain a lot to the returning fans of the book and the movie about the delays, and also what has been going on behind the scenes in the past two years. To a degree, COVID created a lot of personal issues, as it did for everyone, but beyond that, there are three main fronts responsible for the delay, which are the lost sequel, the movie issues, and the business reformatting. Now, the sequel to the book came after people asked me if there was going to be another one. It sounds pretty simple, but to be honest, I didn't actually expect anyone outside of my parents and grandparents to actually read it all the way through, let alone ask for another one. But I did end up doing it, and I had an 80,000 word draft ready to send out for editing right when my computer died. And I was going to go and recover the hard drive and get it back, but then I realized as I was considering my options that that entire draft was basically irrelevant to the entire original book. And that's the worst kind of sequel in my opinion. So I used the time in quarantine to actually think and, and take the time to form a logical connection to the original book, which ended up requiring a full and complete rewrite. Fortunately though, I was able to find inspiration for a sequel plot that is more directly relevant to the first book, and better yet, I was able to use it to plan ahead for a plot that spans across more books in the future. Now I don't want to give anything away yet because the announcements are going to be made on our socials, 
at nickchang21, at an empire in peril, and on YouTube under Nick Chang as well. So if you want to see what the plot is going to be about, you're going to have to stay tuned and subscribe for that. But the first copies are going to be dedicated and sold at the premiere of the movie. And that's a good transition to the next topic. The next thing, the movie. Well, it was delayed at face value because of COVID closing the premiere venues. But again, all that extra spare time gave me the chance to revisit a lot of the scenes and realize that much of it was done just too hastily. You see, I originally was approached by who would eventually become my producer back in 2017, and we had an agreement that I would handle the business side of things and oversee the script just to make sure it aligned with the book, but I would otherwise just be sitting back and watching as a team of independent filmmakers made this cool movie about my work. But then, two weeks before filming started, the Art Institute of Seattle unexpectedly shut down, leaving people stranded and unable to access the equipment and facilities they needed. And then on top of that, my producer had been severely underprepared for the movie, even under the best circumstances. With none of the scenes fully planned, nor any of the sets fully built, it was extremely underwhelming when I was able to get there and check it out. It's safe to say they are not my producer anymore. Uh, but at this point, the rational thing to do, and what everyone was telling me to do, was just to quit, to cut your losses, and maybe someday in the future try again. But I said that failure was not an option here. The studio was already paid for, the actors had made their travel plans, and I had already had a lot of my own money invested. So I decided on an ultra short notice that I would take up the responsibility of producing this film myself. Of course, it came with the massive support of the Seattle film community at large though, especially the Seattle University Film Department. I was able to just barely prepare enough with their guidance and with filling in uh, gaps in my team from their, their ranks uh, to be ready to shoot when the first day came. But even then, it was a challenge like no other. It pushed me to my absolute limits, but I was able to complete it. And that is a story that I will be covering in, in a new episode. That is going to require an entire episode to cover. But going back to how hastily done it was, COVID was actually a benefit here. Because it allowed me to, to review a lot of the scenes, and it allowed me to go back with better people to revisit those scenes, redo the effects, take the time to do it right, and uh, re-render a lot of the special effects, because we all had nothing better to do for the past uh, one to two years. But with the updated product, I was then able to secure a, a venue for the premiere that is the brand new Des Moines Theater in Washington. Just south of Seattle, uh, it's being built right now as the uh, center of the Des Moines area, just south of the airport for those of you that live in the area. Um, and my film is selected now for the opening week lineup, and it's following up on some actual big names and live performances, because it's a concert venue too. And all in all, it's an extremely exciting opportunity, but I do not have a concrete date yet. The developer has only said that it would be around August to September. Uh, but re regardless of that, the light at the end of the tunnel is finally in sight with this movie, and I'm really excited for both the opportunity and the opportunity to get it behind me and move on to some bigger and better things. Finally, you may have noticed that my business was reformed under Leopard Cat Media. That was another source of delays as we got all our paperwork in order, and some people had to leave as the result of aforementioned events. There were a handful of uh, disagreements with, with some people not fully affiliated with the business. But everything eventually got back into working order. Things are moving faster and smoother than ever before. Um, 
and that uh, we've, we've actually taken the time now to consult with a larger number of better and more reliable people. And now we were able to roadmap out projects for the next couple of years that hopefully are going to be on a far better track than they used to be. The biggest front for growth that we've decided is definitely going to be video games. And that's something that should have been a no-brainer all along, really. So if you checked out the website, you would notice that there's at least one video game planned there, a first-person shooter. However, I'm also looking into some more unconventional uh, strategy and world-building games. You see, my main inspiration for getting into sci-fi to begin with was always video games. I'd always assumed for the longest time that the technology and manpower required to make them was just out of reach, and that's the reason why I got into writing uh, from the start. But in the recent years, I've noticed that game development is more accessible than it's ever been before, including access to distribution through Steam, uh, open source software, and a, a larger number of people willing to help. Even better, a lot of computer modeling done for the movie can be ported over into the video game with relatively extra uh, work. With relatively little extra work. So, going forward, especially after the premiere, expect to see demos from the game development, as well as uh, some artistic consultations and early sneak peeks at, uh, at elements of special effects and whatnot. That is definitely what I'm the most excited for, and I wish we had been working on this all along. So that concludes the first half of this episode, uh, the handling of the back end of things. The second half today will be an overview of the world and the lore. I want there to be a heavier focus of world building of the universe in the future episodes, but I do also want to dedicate a handful of episodes specifically just to the real life behind the scenes of it all, because there are so many crazy stories that, in my opinion, are in many ways stranger than fiction. But now we can go and get into an overview of how the universe is. Now, before we dive into this second part of the show, though, I strongly suggest that you purchase a copy of An Empire in Peril and read it through. The link will be in the description of every platform, and if you buy the ebook, it's only $5. If you've made it this far into the video, there's really no reason not to, you're clearly interested. Um, there's options to buy it off of Amazon and Barnes & Noble online. Okay, so the universe begins with the premise that neither world war happens, and that the 19th century era of new imperialism continues into space. This is explored from a more Eastern European perspective, both aesthetically and culturally. And as such, it centers around a key turning point that the Russian Revolution never happens. Now, for this to have happened, what I believe is that Tsar Nicholas II would have had to have been born a fundamentally different person. Someone who was a lot more willing to lead from the beginning, someone who hadn't witnessed the death of his predecessor at the hands of populists, someone who was more willing to negotiate and better diplomatically. In my opinion, that would have been sufficient to turn uh, what would become World War I into merely a regional conflict due to the Serbia-Russia relations. However, this can be argued back and forth at nauseum, um, and it, it really isn't the point of the universe. I, I didn't intend for this to be a historical fiction or an alternate history. I meant for this to be mostly a pure, far-future sci-fi with certain themes and aesthetics that would require the, uh, the Imperial Era to continue as they were. It is important to note, however, that the setting is not a steampunk setting, as some people have asked me about. The technology is very advanced, uh, but 
it has a more classical art style applied to it. But even in the style of the art and architecture itself, as it's described in the book, it's still been greatly modernized. And you'll start to see when the video game demos start coming out what the cities are going to look like. Because I've worked actually with a few different concept artists over the years and tried to get a better take on what an updated take on classical Eastern European architecture would look like. And there's some very, uh, very promising early examples that I'd be happy to show in just a bit. If you're interested in seeing the art develop over the next couple years, once again, please follow us on Instagram at an empire in peril or on YouTube at Nick Chang. Now for the country of focus, where the protagonist is from, the Holy Tekelian Empire. That, just hearing it, immediately presents questions from what people have told me. And the main one, of course, is why is it called that? So the holy aspect comes from the historical claim of the Tsardom uh, to being the third Rome and the historically deeply intertwined ties that the Russian Empire had with the establishment of the Orthodox Church, uh, which is pretty straightforward on its own. But the second question, why are they described uh, and called Tekelians and not Russians as their denizens? Um, and that is because language changes excessively over time. And this takes place 800 years in the future, uh, give or take, it's 2865. English from 800 years ago would be almost completely unintelligible to us. Back in 1150 or so, it would barely be the beginning of the Middle English era. And uh, a lot of the words might sound familiar, but there are also some whose structure and pronunciation would be unrecognizable to us today. And that's why I think it's important to change up the name to be something more fantasy-like. But the, uh, the background reason for this was mostly to, divo uh, to divorce the mental association that the reader may have with present-day Russia, because this, this one is a much, much different place. And I thought that was important back in 2015, but today in 2022, that is way more important than I could have possibly imagined. So I'm, I'm very happy with that decision there. But the next question I get is, why are they, they the dominant power of the world? And the answer is that they are not. It is still very much a multipolar world, with the old European notion, right, of the balance of power still being a major concern. The story simply focuses on their side of things because that's where I wanted the characters to see and interact with the most. I also wanted to make clear that this is, at its heart, a space opera. It includes a lot more science than the average space opera does. It uses some orbital mechanics, military science, economics, uh, a lot of city planning actually, but it's ultimately a lot more about the thrill and the adventure and the, th the deeper themes than it actually is about being fully scientifically accurate like a lot of other sci-fi novels try to be. This has not been an issue with the people that I know. It's only been an issue with the, the Reddit types on the internet, and I don't care that much about their opinions, although that's what my podcast audience is probably going to be like, so I'm going to have to be prepared for that, right? But anyway, the era of the 29th century is in some ways a lot more advanced and developed than the current trajectory of today's society is, uh, and in some ways they're not. In some ways they're a lot more uh, old-fashioned and regressive and uh, have weird holdovers from the past, um, and we can see that played out first and foremost in their economies. For example, the colonization of space was seen in the Empire in Peril universe as an extension of colonial powers races for additional colonies. The scarcity of resources on Earth 
had ended up reinforcing a sort of neo-mercantilist attitude uh, to securing vast tracts of space and their natural resources. And uh, that drive wasn't brought about as a result of ideological competition or, or competition between ideologies, that is, the way it was with the Cold War space race of our timeline, but rather with all sides participating, having the same singular competitive mindset. That way, as nations rose and fell, the world's ambitions for space exploration remained quite constant and well-funded. Also as the result of this mindset, the economies of the 29th century uh, have a big focus on localized industries and being as self-sustaining as possible, while also maximizing exports and minimizing imports if they can. Now this may seem like a relatively backwards notion compared to today's 21st century laissez-faire economics, but in a world not too far from today, it's relatively easy to imagine that the scarcity of resources on Earth, additionally with the difficulty of getting space resources, and as well as the uh, distances involved between planets getting greater and greater, uh, changing people's minds and reverting back to a sort of protectionist slash uh, mercantilist attitude. Additionally, we're starting to see now that the over-reliance and over-concentration of manufacturing in other countries is actually both an economic and military liability. This has become a more relevant topic now more than ever, but it is still one that I considered back when I was writing this in 2015, that localized disruptions, political changes, and natural disasters can disrupt long-range supply chains, especially if it's all concentrated and being produced in one small region. And uh, it only takes a, a relatively minor local conflict to fully disrupt the output to the entire rest of the world. And furthermore, as distances greatly increase, as we, uh, as we see with faster-than-light travel getting to other solar systems, the odds that some sort of blockage or interference with the supply chains will be encountered gets exponentially higher as well. It's also, as we are seeing now with the very current series of events with the sanctions on Russia, with the modern-day Russian invasion of Ukraine, is that uh, that over-reliance on nations that are opposed to you strategically is also a major liability because economic warfare is an extension of, uh, of foreign policy as well. And if you are relying on a country that has opposite goals to yours, they can easily cut off your supply of something. All of these things contribute to a relatively uh, relatively seemingly dated from our perspective reversion back to this sort of uh, protectionist mindset and and all of the pros and cons that it that comes with it because it's also described in the book as having its quite large series of cons as well that that uh, things are harder to get and they're more expensive and all the benefits that come from free trade namely cheap consumer goods are not quite what they're supposed to be and now, of course, with the uh, the overview of the economy, uh, that sort of attitude is going to definitely influence their system of government, and that's going to be the next thing that I'm going to go and cover, is a system of government, not of all the nations, although I will if the podcast does well enough, but just of the main Holy Tekelian Empire for now. So, the system of government of the Tekelian Empire also then takes influences from the old structure of the Russian Empire combined with the proposed reforms of the Constitutional Democratic Party of the early 1900s. For example, the head of state is now called the Premier General, which is 
something halfway between the original Tsardom and the Western parliamentary system. As a head of state, they're also a commissioned military officer, for example. Um, there's something of a debate because of this over whether this makes the empire a stratocracy or not, which is when the military is permanently and formally heading a civilian government in a more structured way, not like a coup or a junta. The answer from, from my perspective would be technically yes, but effectively no, because the premier along with the imperial parliament is democratically elected, and they're subject to a more modern system of checks and balances, with the parliament being elected through proportional representation. The fact that the leaders are military officers in the universe is already seen as more of a formality. It's already discussed, I believe, around chapter 2, that they really don't behave as though they were. And then, even then, the relationship between the Earth and the Soul System and the Outer Colonies is extremely distant. And that's actually a function of how faster-than-light travel works in the universe. Because you see, a journey across multiple solar systems requires a large amount of jumps. The main reason that uh, it requires so many also is because jumps can only be performed in straight lines. So jumping through subspace is a little bit more like aiming a cannon rather than actually traveling like you would in, say, like Star Trek. But also, the ships can't go through certain areas with large gravitational anomalies. They have to avoid these areas by making as many straight jumps as they can around them, and this all takes a lot of time. Each time a ship exits subspace, they need to then make orbital maneuvers through regular space to reach the next jump point, and they have to use conventional engines not far off from what we have today uh, in order to get to those points, which is what can take up to days at a time. Uh, there is also no faster-than-light communication outside of putting the data on a ship and having that ship jump to the correct system, which means that the flow of information can be delayed by weeks or over a month at the farthest ends of human space. This means, of course, that extensive centralized bureaucracy from Earth just isn't possible. Trying to process permits, enforce regulations, and perform regular inspections isn't doable by anything other than the local level. And by local, I mean from within the same system and at the distances where a radio signal can reach within a few hours at most. And at heart, I believe this calls attention to the fact that the central government of any nation, including today, is a relatively blunt instrument, and at the end of the day, it's really only capable of enforcing its will through the projection of military power and over very long distances. And in the distances involved in the Empire and Peril universe being tens of light years, this is really only worth doing over the relatively larger picture issues. Now, of course, there are major downsides to this as well. There's a lack of standardization across the colonies. There's a lot of unregulated business activities where the quality of goods and services aren't consistent. And there's, uh, there can be underdeveloped infrastructure across a lot of remote areas as well. These are all things that are noted across the first book and are going to be uh, reinforced a lot deeper through the second. But thematically speaking, for the sake of the first book, I really wanted to get across the notion that much like 19th century Europe at the time, this, this era isn't perfect. It, it's not a utopian setting, despite it being described as something of a positive place where at least uh, positive enough for people to be happy with their lives and, and enough for the protagonist to want to actively defend it against the Dominion, which is the whole point of the, the book, of course. And this comes in spite of their knowledge of its flaws. They, they definitely recognize, the characters themselves, 
that there's a tremendous amount of corruption and poverty and occasional instances of outright tyranny. And since the imperial era has lasted for so many centuries at this point, a lot of people's mindsets are also very deeply entrenched and old-fashioned. You can see that uh, played out in how the art style in-universe and the technology has been extremely slow to change over the centuries. For example, a lot of the, uh, the vehicles and weapons patterns are dated back to like the 2600s, 2500s even. There can be multiple centuries old instances and classes of ships still in service. Uh, and, and one thing that a lot of people notice in the book too is that while the nations of an empire in peril are more advanced than we are today, they aren't as advanced as you might imagine it would be in the 29th century for what it should be 800 years in the future. For example, their guns still use bullets, there's no fusion power, there's no energy shields, and they still listen to the same songs from the early 1900s on records, on wax cylinder records nonetheless, not even disc records. But that system, it had just worked barely well enough over those centuries to grow and sustain a vast economy over hundreds of solar systems, which is an unimaginable feat, really, that I don't think people truly appreciate the magnitude of. And while the old, outdated aspects of the world may be annoying, one thing they do, without question, is that they work. And that's a recurring theme throughout the book, is that everything is a lot more complex than you think, and that there's a lot more ways to, to break it than improve it. The odds that you are capable of, of removing something that doesn't work and successfully replacing it are pretty low. And it's a lot like encoding, which is partially where I got the thematic influence from, is that if something works in coding, you really shouldn't touch it unless there's a very good reason to. Because, for example, deleting an unused variable could somehow cause an entire app to stop working. I've, I've seen little trivialities like that in my job recently come, in, come into play. And that also went on to prove true in the series of events that followed the fall of the Russian Empire. The whole country ended up experiencing famines and shortages caused by the overly hasty destruction of a system without considering what parts of it were keeping people fed. I really wanted this book to be an approach from a place of deep humility, which is why the decentralized nature of the empire's political systems exist. The Aridenic Dominion represents the opposite of that. They're fundamentally alien. They come from a different area, as a different species, and yet they want to enforce a singular system onto all species in the galaxy. And they do this from a place of hubris. They believe that their way is beyond question and universal. And as a plot element, they're supposed to represent something of a powerful movement with utopian ideals that, on many occasions, correctly calls out the shortcomings and the outright failures of the human empires. But what they advocate for at the end of the day requires throwing out a lot of aspects of everyday life that people take for granted and don't even realize that they're happy with, and they want to do so by force. Of course, they also have a fully fleshed out society and culture and system of government, and that'll all be addressed in a future episode dedicated to them, but purely for the structure of the plot, which is what I'm trying to get established today's, in today's episode as a bigger picture, that is what they are supposed to represent. The point of the whole book that they fit into was to be a story that we see played out on a daily basis at work, at home, at school, and on the news. I had intended the original An Empire in Peril novel to be a commentary and a warning 
on the nature of overly centralized ideas and to encourage the development of solutions at a more holistic and local level. And finally, I meant for this to be a call for measuredness in times of great personal change like I was experiencing when I wrote it. it. It is supposed to be a message to take care not to throw out the positive aspects of yourself in your rush to develop as a person, which is something I had to contend with immediately following high school and going into college. There's so much more about the world that I would love to talk about, and as long as this podcast does well, I will keep making episodes that go deeper and deeper. So in the meantime, thank you for tuning in, and once again, don't forget to buy the book and follow our socials. I'll see you in the next episode. Thank you. Pushing us back planet by planet. We can't fall back anymore.